Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Seth Morrill, living down here in uh, Iguana, southern Nicaragua, a beautiful development on the beach in front of one of our favorite waves, Colorado, who I've gotten to know over the years and somebody who's really inspired me to continue on in my own lifestyle design because he's a success story, folks. Like He came with very little and has built a very nice life for himself with his wife and his two beautiful young daughters. And I thought I'd bring him on because... He has a perspective now on a side of Nicaragua and the medical system here that not a lot of people get. I think a lot of people fear, and which is a reason that a lot of families might not choose to bring their families down to an environment like this and raise them because, you know, the medical systems have a, a stigma about them that they're not up to par. And uh, he went through something recently with one of his daughters that gave him perspective that I'd like to just bring on and talk about and get to know more about. So, Seth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we get into all that, though, maybe we can just go through a little bit of, you know, your background and then what you brought you here originally and, and what you're doing to sustain yourself. So, where, where are you from originally? I grew up in New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Yeah. And born and raised in a family that traveled a lot, or were you... No, we didn't, we didn't travel too much, yeah. We kind of just hunkered down like good East Coasters. <laughs> and then, so then the travel bug... I mean, how how did you even make it out of New Hampshire? I guess is my question. Because <laughs> you don't meet a lot of people down here coming from New Hampshire. Um, yeah, well, primarily sn- snowboarding played a big role in my life. I started uh, started snowboarding at, at it when I was eight years old, and I uh, really fell in love with it. And uh, by the time I was about eleven, I started to compete pretty seriously, and um, it evolved into me being able to travel and see other parts of the country and other parts of the world, and that's what really opened my eyes to just the perspective of, uh, you know, of life. You know, I've been so sheltered in, in my little New Hampshire town for so long. You know, I was under the, under the thought that, you know, everyone had a car and a television and, you know, that was just the way it was, you know, um, very little culture up there, you know, beautiful country, beautiful area, but, but but very little culture and exposure. So the more I got out and the more I experienced different areas and met different people that really opened my eyes to how big the world was. And, uh, and I could already tell it was it was just a beautiful thing to experience, you know, to see where other people were coming from. Such a big world and, and so many different opinions and, 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 and views and, and things like that. It was just a, it was a good, uh, a, a big eye-opener for me. So, yeah, the more I traveled, the more I wanted to travel and, see, and see more. Were you professional? Did you make it to that elite level of snowboarding? Uh, semi-pro, yeah. Okay, so you <laughs> got paid? yeah. That's yeah. cool. That's quite an accomplishment. It was fun. Yeah, it was a great experience. It got you know, I got to see a lot of the world and meet some really interesting people. And you know, I definitely I wouldn't have traded it for anything. It definitely gave me opportunities that I never wouldn't have had without it. That's for sure. And how long did you do that for? Uh, I did that for about uh, comp- competed for about eleven years straight from when I was about you know ten, eleven years old till I was about twenty. Okay. Um, and then what was life um, like after that? Kind of that door closed. Uh, it was. It was nice. It was, I, I wanted the door to close, ironically enough. 
I was tired of traveling and and uh, I wanted to just be home with my friends. And back in New Hampshire. Yeah, or, or or just yeah, back in New Hampshire, just just to kind of settle down because I was just it was such a whirlwind, you know, for for the last the few years after I got out of, out of high school, you know, and finally I wasn't in high school anymore. I went to public school until I was in twelfth grade. Um, moved out of uh, public school to uh, to Utah as kind of a base, and then just but just traveled pretty much nonstop from then on out, which was which was good, but it was uh, it was just a little wearing, you know, and and I was always around people that were like me because of who I rode for or what I was doing or how I finished in the last event. I did, I felt that a lot of my friendships weren't as sincere as, or as genuine as as the ones that I made when I was a young kid, and I felt that a lot of my my friends and back home were you know leading. More, more normal kind of lives and, and having fun with each other. And that just, I miss that. I, I would, every time I come home, I'd, I'd love to be home just for like a week or two. And then every time I left, I, I didn't want to go. And it became more and more that I just realized I didn't want to be up doing that that much more. I wanted to be, you know, I, I wanted to go to college and just be a normal kid and have friends that were my friends because we had similarities and, you know, because we were friends, not because we rode for the same company and we were stuck in the same van or the same airplane for, you know, six months nonstop. Right. So, uh, so it was, it was welcome by the time I was about 21, I was, I was pretty over it and, and, and really, really happy to make the change and, and just kind of get away from the industry and all, all that kind of hoopla. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting to go, to go back and, and settle into that lifestyle again and, and feel good about it. And then, I mean, now, now we find ourselves in Nicaragua. So there's that, yeah. I mean, that's 20 years because you're 40 year old man now, like that's still yeah. a 20 year old gap, but what what happened next? I mean, did you get into the the rat race, the nine to five? Like, what happened after you kind of wrapped up the snowboarding gig? I went to college for a few years, and um, you know, and uh, went to college in New Hampshire for two years, and then um, decided to go out to uh, California because I was I was majoring in graphic design at the time, and uh, you know, really wanted to finish out in a really good, strong school. I, I firmly believed at that time that that was going to be my career, and I and I wanted to make the most of it, so. I uh, scouted some some schools out west and and landed in uh, San Francisco at the Academy of Art, which was a great school. Um, and it was a really you know beautiful area and very nice. And it also brought me closer to the ocean, which I had since I was a little grom. I remember like one of the first times I went to California, I was maybe eleven or twelve years old, and I went into my first surf shop. And I remember just going, "This is it, man! This is super cool. Like this is what I want to do. Like snowboarding's rad, skateboarding's rad, but I really always just wanted to surf, you know." That's interesting. And it was like the one thing I remember, you know, that didn't disappoint. You know, you have all these kind of thoughts and ideas about how things are going to be. Like, you know, even when you get your driver's license for the first time or, or, you know, anything like that. To me, it was like, this is one of the things that was as good as I always hoped or imagined it would have been, you know, Mm -hmm. extremely difficult, you know, and very hard, but it was still like, it was, it was everything I hoped it would have been, you know, from, from the get go. So that, that to me was super cool. And to be able to be, in an environment where I actually start surfing on a, on a regular basis, and it was a uh, was a lot of fun, and, and was was what eventually brought me down here as well. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, let's touch on that real quick. As far as you know, having an expectation of your life and designing it in the way that you thought, which happened to be graphic design, and thinking about that being the path that you were going to take and and continue down. I mean, what happened with that? I found myself sitting in front of a computer for ten hours a day. And uh, when I had entered in, in graphic design, it was all hands-on. And that's what I loved about it. I loved art, and I loved hands-on art. But I never really liked computers a whole lot. And I definitely didn't like sitting in an office or in a cubicle at all. So kind of always at that turn where it went from hands-on markups and, and layouts to 
everything was digitized, everything was computerized. Photoshop was coming into the mix, you know, and and uh, and I was yeah, I was I was in the classroom, you know, until my eyes were bugging out of my head. I'd come home at night and just be like, wow, I just spent ten hours straight looking at a computer screen, and this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I wanted. So kind of got me thinking, and uh, and my love for snowboarding, you know, was always there. I, I didn't so much love the industry or competing as much, but I always loved riding. And um, and a friend of mine had uh, had pretty much talked me into coaching again, which was a, a great way for me to make some extra money on, on, on the, on the part-time when I was in college. So I started off as a, a one day a week, um, gig where I'd make enough money so I could eat basically <laughs> and live. And, uh, it really opened my eyes to why I fell in love with snowboarding in the first part. You know, I was with these groms that just loved it for the sheer love of it. You know, there was no competition. There was no sponsorship there was no worry about contracts and money and all that it was just snowboarding for the pure love of snowboarding which to me was was super cool so i uh that was kind of drawing me back and uh i I wanted to be back in the mountains i always loved lake tahoe and i always wanted to to move and live there you know i went there when i was younger as well and swore that that would be the place that i'd move back to because it was just so beautiful and the snow was so great and just such a nice area so um luckily i Met up with a guy who had an, a, a position open in uh, in Squaw Valley, and I decided to uh, to leave school. And in my, in my third, you know, I was uh, a year away from completion, but I just knew I wasn't ever going to do that. I wasn't ever going to sit at a desk in front of a computer for eight, ten hours a day. You know, it just it wasn't me. You know, I I grew up building houses and stuff. I'd rather go pound nails and just be outside and work with my hands than than doing that. And, and I knew I could do that. And I knew I could also, you know, work in as a coach and, and really enjoy that as well. So, so I left the city and, and moved to uh, Squaw Valley, which was, uh, I'd never been to that mountain before, but it was amazing. It's actually one of the most incredible mountains. So how do you balance your love for surfing and love for snowboarding? I mean, those are worlds apart and Lake Tahoe is nowhere near the ocean. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. Like, uh, you know, I was in Lake Tahoe and about two years after I'd been there nonstop, I really started to miss surfing and uh, I was going to my, boss. I'm like, man, I think I'm going to move. You know, I think I'm going to go to Southern California because my vision of Southern California at the time was, you know, palm trees and flip flops and, you know, and perfect surf. And, and I'm just like, I'm just going to move there. And, uh, and he's like, don't go to Southern California. He's like, go to Hawaii. If you're going to move somewhere, he's like, you don't know anybody anyways. You might as well go to Hawaii. He's like, I lived in Maui for a long time. It's a great place and you should check it out. And he's like, I only need you for four and a half months out of the year. I'm like, why don't you just go to Maui for the rest of the time and then come back here for the four and a half months? And I was like, that's Sounds like a pretty good idea if I can make it happen, you know. So, but why not try? You know, I, I really didn't have anything to lose, and uh, and I had the freedom to be able to travel. And you know, I always knew if if it didn't work out, you know, and I always just save enough in my bank account so I could come back to where I was and get back into the same groove that I was doing before. So, uh, yeah, I took the plunge and went and lived in a tent for the first two months I was there, and with a good friend of mine and, and we had a blast, man. We rode bikes everywhere and, you know, got jobs in, in the service industry, which is very easy on West Maui because it's just booming every single day there. So we, you know, we had good jobs, made good money and, you know, started to live a pretty fun quality of life. And I just popped back to Tahoe and, uh, and coach for four and a half months, five months for, with the kids and have a blast and get some great snow. And, and by the time, you know, each one of them started to get a little bit old, it was cool because I would just jump into the next one. Mm-hmm. I did that for eight years. Wow. I mean, that's pretty cool, that balance of four months in Tahoe, the rest in Hawaii, 
And I mean, that's a dream, right? People probably must have told you, like, you're living the dream, bud. Uh, a lot, yeah. And my answer would be, you know, I bust, but I bust my balls for it, you know, yeah. <clears throat> which I did. It was, it was difficult to find a place to live every six months. And, uh, and back then it was like, you know, I didn't, I even had like landlines. I'd have to like set up my, my phone, you know, <laughs> before I, okay. this is just when cell phones are starting to come into it. But yeah, so, so it was a lot of work, you know, and, and I'd be talking to property managers or realtors and, you know, trying to convince them that, you know, I was in Maui, but I was going to come to Tahoe in, in two months and I didn't have a job. And, and at first they were like, you know, it was very difficult to find a place to live. Over the years, I developed relationships and, and it made it a lot, a lot easier for me to make that transition back and forth. But it was definitely something that, I, I worked at, you know, it, it, it didn't fall in my lap. I, I did a lot of hard work and effort to put myself in those places, but it was worth it. Yeah. I wouldn't have traded that for anything. That's cool. So then, yeah, what sounds like, I mean, you weren't jumping to Mexico or going to Costa Rica. Were you doing any of that kind of travel? Or it was just back and forth, back and forth, Hawaii, Lake Tahoe, Hawaii, Lake Tahoe. Just back and forth. I mean, the day I'd land in one place, I'd, I'd like come back to, luckily I had a job in, in Maui that really allowed me to go back and forth. I had a great bar job and a great owner that really appreciated um, my work ethic and allowed me to come back every year. And I would come right back into to working a double the first day. You know, my first day back in Maui, I'd, I'd, I'd work 12 hours straight. And I worked generally a lot, which I love because I was able to save the money. And that's the only way I was able to make it happen was by making that money to pay for my plane tickets and pay for, you know, the back and forth. And, and, uh, and a lot of people didn't want to work there. So they would give me their shifts all the time. I mean, I'd work two, three weeks straight, but it was also great because it was a night gig, you know, and I'd come into work at four or five o'clock and get out of one or two and I'd have all day to surf, you know, I'd sleep in until 10 or 11 and surf for three or four hours in the afternoon and then go to work. It was pretty nice. So can I ask how much you were saving? Um, it was a good bar job. Um, I was, if I made less than $200 cash a night, I was disappointed. Yeah. And uh, on top of that, I made minimum wage, which is $8 and change. And then also in Hawaii, if you work four consecutive weeks for more than 20 hours a week, you get health insurance mm-hmm. included. So mm-hmm. I had full bennies and, and yeah. So like monthly about, you're putting in the bank, like what? Like not to have to even touch? Uh, $5,000. Wow. On a, on, a, on a good month. That's yeah. amazing. And, and, and still being able to pay my rent. And everything was obviously is like super expensive. And now, you know, um, food, all that. But I was, you know, most of the time I was eating at the restaurant I was working at. Um, and I had a, what you call the, the Maui beater car. I always had a 800 to $1,000 Toyota Corolla mm-hmm. or, or something like that. And I just buy and, you know, and, and just rock that thing the whole time. So it was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty cool experience. So then how'd you wind up here? I mean, not having traveled Central America or Mexico, it sounds like previous, like why, why buy a ticket to Nicaragua? I was, I always wanted to visit Central America. I'd never been to Central America ever. I heard good things and I was really tired of all the guys at the window work at the restaurant, at the bar, I'd have all the old dogs come in and they'd be, you know, guys in their fifties, sixties, seventies. And they'd be telling me, Oh kid, you should have been here 30 years ago. I bought my house for 35 grand. You know, I surfed Honolulu Bay with nobody around. And, and meanwhile, I'm like starting to save a little bit of money. So I'm thinking about buying a house myself and I'm realizing the shittiest condo I can get on West Maui is still going to be $2,500 mortgage a month. And that's just for a total dump. You know, I'm just going, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. You know, I'm never going to be able to get ahead if I, you know, get this little condo, you know, 
for, for and owns me, you know, I don't own it. That thing at $2,500 a month is just, that's it. And I just thought, man, is there, is there no way that I can get in on kind of more of a grassroots level in, in a, in a place that's less crowded, you know, that I just totally missed the boat. And is that all gone for, for us? And I started talking to some friends and, you know, my initial thought was Costa Rica and a good buddy of mine who'd done a lot more traveling than me said, oh, you don't want to go to Costa Rica, man. You want to go to Nicaragua. Nicaragua is like 20 years behind Costa Rica. And I went, yeah, this is, that sounds like it's worth checking out. I would love to see it. So November was kind of always a down month between Hawaii and, and, uh, and Tahoe. And I would remember, you know, going back to Tahoe for, or, or, or being in, in Maui, I would spend more money in that month in November than I would if I could have come down to Central America and actually enjoyed myself and traveled the whole time. So my girlfriend at the time, uh, wife now, we, uh, we made our first trip down in 2007 and, and immediately it was, you know, the opportunity I saw it was there, you know, the ability to get in and start a business on the, on the, on the ground floor, you know, from the grassroots and, you know, to be one of those guys that were always, whether it was in Tahoe or in Maui telling me I should have been there 30, 40, 50 years earlier, it kind of like, it opened my eyes down here, not to mention it's such a beautiful country and, and, and great people and, uh, you know, amazing waves and, and, uh, it just seemed like, you know, why not try? Why not? try it out try what though just living or working just living just putting myself down here and doing whatever would pay the bills you know and and things i I figured more or less would work out you know i'd find a good niche and a demand you know because i saw so many businesses so many successful businesses in places like maui and tahoe and down here there was hardly anything being done so i figured you know no matter what it is whether if it's kayak rentals or scuba gear or you know whatever bicycles or even if it's just even if it's just working in a kitchen um i could still have a great quality of life you know with a with amazing uncrowded beaches and people that were just stoked on life they had nothing but but were so happy with everything mm-hmm. where on maui you'd see people that had everything and they weren't happy with anything so just the difference was like man i was young i was able to travel i was able to pull up and and, and you know take the plunge and kind of one of my mantras is always like, you know, if it, if it doesn't work out, then I can always get back on a plane and fly back to Dolly's Cafe in West Maui and start working again. Did you have a timeline on like how long you're going to give this to determine whether you had made it or not? Or it was money. <laughs> oh, just money. Money in the bank was my timeline. I literally they like I kept just barely enough that I could buy a plane ticket back to West Maui. And, and that was kind of for, for Lindsay and I, that was kind of our, our benchmark for the first couple of years that we came really close to it a lot of times. So you came close on assuming it's like gotta be a couple thousand dollars in savings just to get less yourself than, home. Yeah. Let, well, it'd be like 1500 bucks. I had less than $2,000 in my bank account for pretty much the whole time. First two years. At least. Yeah. If, and then, you know, I figured, you know, as long as I had 15, I could get the plane ticket and get myself back there and, mm-hmm. and, you know, crash at a buddy's house or couch or whatever and start working again and pick it back up. But, but I always kind of thought that it would work out, you know, and so what was your first business venture down here? Um, the first opportunity that presented itself in Hacienda Iguana for us was uh, running a breakfast cafe. You know, we had some people that had a space that wasn't being used. Um, no one was doing breakfast in the community. At that time, there was only one restaurant. They were doing lunch and dinner. So we figured it would be a good niche. And I knew how to cook and my wife was knew how to serve. And we just did everything ourselves for, for the first year and a half that we lived here. 
and you sustained yourself, like genetic money? Uh, not really. No, it made it made us about enough money to live mm-hmm. down here in Nicaragua, which was you know just feeding ourselves and and uh, and, and being able to put gas in the car, and mm-hmm. being able to afford you know a, a beater of a car, and just you know. Um, but we were yeah we were we were barely making it. But it was nice because we were living a great quality of life and we were meeting a lot of really interesting people. And that's kind of how our whole business evolved. We were, you know, we were, we had met owners here that came in because, you know, we were the only ones doing breakfast. And then and they'd come in and say, oh, what are you guys doing here? And he'd say, well, we're doing this, but we're looking, you know, looking for opportunities and we want to make a life down here. And, and they were just amazed that we actually lived here full time. At that time, there was only three other retired couples that lived here and uh, some Danish investors that were building condos and no one else. So when a lot of the owners that were building houses or had houses or were building condos or had condos met us, they were amazed that we actually lived here full time and that we wanted to work. We were looking for work and looking for an opportunity. Um, it, it started to dawn on us while we were working our breakfast cafe that there were a lot of people that showed up to rent houses or rent condos that were completely in the dark. There was nobody around to help them. I mean, we'd have people every day come into our breakfast cafe and say, you know, do you know where this person is? And we went to our place and there's no toilet paper and we don't have any food and no one told us there wasn't any grocery store here. And we didn't realize it was an hour and a half from Rebus. And we were just going, man, if we just start doing this, you know, and start being responsible property managers that inform people and actually help people out when they're there, you know, we could really make this work. And, and around that same time, yeah, we met, uh, the owners of cost Colorado's while they were building it and they were, you know, halfway through their house, didn't speak Spanish. Everything was getting done wrong. They weren't around. Um, they needed eyes and ears on the ground and, uh, and they were just as stoked to meet us as we were as, as them. And, and, uh, and they gave us the opportunity to kind of take over the runnings of the house and oversee the construction of the house, which was an amazing opportunity for us because it really gave us, you know, uh, firsthand experience on what it is to, to, to build and, and a really nice oceanfront home here. Um, so we, we kind of picked that up and ran with it. And, uh, other owners started to take notice of what we were doing. Um, and the progressions that we were making with the house and, and uh, more people started asking us if we would be interested in managing their property and helping them out. So it was really pretty amazing. We didn't have to solicit our, or market ourselves in any other, in any way. We just put ourselves here. Wow. And, uh, and, and, you know, just worked as hard as we could for whoever would, would take us, you know? And so what's the name of your business now? Uh, Iguana Surf Rentals. And you do everything. I mean, you do everything from managing properties to to what? What kind of services do you provide? We do. Uh, we manage properties. <clears throat> we, um, you know, so we do everything for the owners from A to Z. Every single maintenance, uh, upkeep, paying of taxes, filing of all that, um, employing the staff, uh, ensuring the workers for for the houses or the condos, providing meal services and packages. Um, making relationships with transportation drivers so we can get you, you know, to and from the airport. And now, you know, now we run a pretty, pretty awesome deal where, you know, you get picked up from the airport with a sign on your name, you know, and you get driven to the house or the condo and, and everything is taken care of for you, you know, from, mm-hmm. from A to Z. How many employees do you have working for you? Uh, we have over 20. 
It's amazing, man. To start where you started. That's crazy. Yeah, we used to all, we used to do it all ourselves too. So it's that's like, incredible. I mean, and now you have a wife, the, your original girlfriend. You came down with. Mm-hmm. You have two young girls. Yeah. And you're making a life and a successful one at that. I mean, like I said at the beginning of the show, like I've got to see you start and progress and be where you're at today, which has been tremendously inspirational. You know, as I continue to go down the road with my thing and and Thank try you. to continue to develop my life. And then recently, you know, with the birth of your second child, you had, um, I think what a lot of parents would describe as like their worst nightmare come true, you know, being in an environment that I think is judged for having poor health care for those who don't know. And um, you want to just take us through what happened to your daughter and, and how that all played out? Yeah. Yeah. So we have uh, we have two daughters. Um, Risa is three years old and our youngest Zia is now 11 months old. When she was two months both were born here in Nicaragua and uh, great experiences as far as, you know, having the kids and the medical, everything for our first child was, was perfect. You know, great doctors that you can call at nine o'clock on a Sunday night and they'll, and they'll pick up their phone and answer. It's, it's just, it's so much more personal than anything I've experienced in, in the States as far as the, the patient doctor relationship here, you know, um, and, and the hospitals are, the good ones are very good. Um, I, to argue to say they're, they're better than some of the, the hospitals in the states but with our second daughter when she was two months old she got uh, she got sick she got bronchiolitis which turned into pneumonia uh, which we had to take her to the hospital for and then we realized that um, even after several days of treatments she still wasn't oxygenating her oxygen percentage in her blood was lower than it should be um, so they started looking into other options. My wife's sister had also been born with congenital heart problems. And uh, once my wife told the doctors this, they did an, an ECG and found out that she had basically what, what they thought at the time was a hole between her left and right ventricle in the septum. And that was causing the blood to mix so it wasn't oxygenating properly. One side of the heart pumps the blood, the other side oxygenates it. They should be kept apart. If they mix, then the oxygenation isn't what it should be, and uh, and that was the problem with with Zia. She was she was not uh, getting that oxygen, so she was not eating as much as a normal baby. She was eating about half of what she should be eating because she would get so tired from nursing due to her inability to oxygenate her blood that she would just stop eating, and she wasn't gaining weight. And that was one of the biggest problems. And uh, it was something that, you know, it wasn't life-threatening immediately that had to be done. Um, but they definitely wanted us to do it before she was a year old. And, uh, and do what? And what to, have a, to have a heart surgery. Have like open, heart, open heart surgery. Open heart surgery. There's no way that you can do uh, a VSD like she had uh, with a catheter. And, you know, but of course... We got a lot of bad information from people that didn't know. They said, oh, yeah, you can do it with a catheter. You can do it with this. So for us, it was, you know, a lot of a lot of stress and a lot of legwork on our end to figure out what the problem really was and <clears> how, <throat> how it could be treated and, and whether, you know, whether per se it was something that had to be done, open heart surgery versus a, a catheter surgery. And, and, you know, the more we learned, the more it was kind of a process of elimination, you know, and. And we could have it done here in Nicaragua and with the national health care, it would be done for free. In the in the US it would have cost us about a hundred thousand dollars. 
so we were we were leaning towards having it done here um, in Nicaragua and um, unfortunately the hospital that that we go to for everything else Vivian Palis doesn't do child doesn't do uh, pediatric cardio surgery so there was a there was a local hospital hospital integral in, in Managua which we'd heard very good things from and, and the doctors had very good records of of success um, they've done many of these surgeries um, so we were getting prepared to have it done here. There were delays, there were more delays, you know, something would go wrong and something else would go wrong and something else would go wrong again. First they wanted her to put more weight on, um, ideally for the surgery, but she wasn't putting the weight on. She wasn't, she was not getting the weight. Um, so she was actually a pretty chubby baby up until the point where she got the, the pneumonia. And then she just started to lose all the body fat. She started to get really skinny. And we were realizing, okay, this is, it's, she's not going to be able to put on the extra weight that they have, that they wanted to put on. She's going to have to have it done now. And, uh, and it's also, you know, there, there are, there can be, uh, consequences to, to not having the surgery for allowing it to go. Hi hypertension can be caused in the heart. Just, it's, it's just an overstrain of the heart because it's working twice as fast. You know, her breathing was so, so rapid. It would be, you know, short little breaths, but really quick because she wasn't, Again, she wasn't oxygenating the, the way that she needed to. So it became very apparent to us about two months after we had diagnosed her that, that we needed to have the surgery sooner than later. So we were pushing to have it done here. They were saying, okay, the first was have her gain more weight, but she's not gaining more weight. Second was, you know, we'll have it done here, but you, know, you need to go through all the paperwork and, and the registration and the signing up and getting on the list and, you know, registering at the hospital. And we were doing all this. And then we had gotten everything done that, that they had said we needed to do, but they were still delaying. And, and we were asking why. And then they finally came out and said, well, we don't have the oxygenator for her. And, you know, my initial first thing that I said was, well, you either you had it and it broke or you never had it in the first place. But either way, it's made us very leery of doing the surgery here at, at that hospital because, I mean, this this was the life support system that, that kept her alive while they were doing the open heart surgery. So if they didn't have a backup and the one they had for whatever reason broke or, or whatever, like it just we started to second guess our, our initial thoughts of having it done here in Nicaragua and and started to branch out, look into other places um, in Central America that would be, you know, less than half the cost of what it would do in the States, but we're still accredited hospitals and, you know, and very good. So um, we luckily found a handful in, in Mexico and a few in Colombia and a few in Panama. And through process of elimination and communication with the doctors, we decided to go to uh, Punta Pacifica in, in Panama. And uh, it, was a, it was a great hospital. It was definitely the best choice that we'd ever made. It was a Johns Hopkins accredited hospital. Um, the surgery was going to be $36,000 versus $100,000. Um, they had all the newest top-notch medicine, equipment, machines. Everything was just as good as it was at the Boston uh, Child's Med Center. And we also um, paid a certain fee to Boston, Boston Pediatric to have them cross-reference everything that we had been told in Nicaragua and everything we were being told in Panama in order to give us a second opinion, which was a great thing. So they were able to communicate directly with the doctors and say, 
yes, what these guys are saying makes sense. They're on it. We would use the same procedure. We would do it the same way. Um, basically just double checking on everything, reaffirming everything and, and giving us confidence in these, in these hospitals that we really knew nothing about. So we, yeah, we set it up, settled on, um, on Punta Pacifica in Panama and, uh, and they were amazing. They were just like, you can come down. You know, they saw her stats and everything and they said, you need to come now, right now. You know, when can you come? And we got a ticket in three days and we got there. They picked us up the very next morning and brought us to the hospital and just gave us the best care that you could ever, ever hope for. And, and we're just so responsive and, and so considerate of our needs and, and there was no visiting times. We were able to be with her all the time with the exception of, of the surgery time. But, um, you know, they, they were just amazing. And the doctors were really, really great and very well experienced and, uh, and had all worked in hospitals in, in the U S for many, many years. And, and I would highly recommend to anyone with any kind of a medical condition, if you can't afford to have it done in the, in the U S you know, ch- check this hospital out. They are, as good as it gets. What was your doctor's name? Dr. Ochoa. Dr. Ochoa. Yeah. Big shout out, Dr. Ochoa. <laughs> definitely. Awesome. Definitely. Him, him and his, and his team, they had a, you know, a, a, a whole team, the cardio team, but they were all just amazing, you know, and, and, uh, and really helped us through what was by far the, the most, the toughest time of our lives, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the most stressful. Um, and then what? So surgery happened and then next day, like you see immediate difference and, and your baby? Yeah. Next day, it's like her, her color. I mean, she was so pale mm-hmm. and white before, and she just was all of a sudden rosy. Wow. And even the next day, she was smiling and happy, and the recuperation time was just amazing. I mean, she was in, in surgery uh, for four and a half, five hours. Um, we were able to see her about six or seven hours after we had admitted her. Um, she wasn't conscious then, but we were able to be with her the whole time in, uh, in the ER. And, uh, and she was in the ER for three days and then was moved to the standard room. And, uh, and she was in the standard room for two and a half days and then we were released from the hospital. And flew back to Nicaragua. Um, we stayed in Panama for another, uh, uh, week and a half after the surgery just to do some, some checkups and everything, make sure everything was good. And, uh, yeah, we stayed there and went back and, and everything checked out really well. And then we were able to go back to Nicaragua. Amazing. So the whole thing was two weeks. We were in and out and it was done. And then, and then all of our checkups after that, we did with our cardio doctor here in, in Nicaragua. Um, who's also a, a great doctor and he's, he's very good. I and mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the, uh, the doctors. It was more the, 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 uh, facilities and the fact that they didn't have, you know, backup machinery for the, for the, you know, surgery. The surgery, yeah, yeah, stuff that's so so important. That makes sense. And so now she's normal kid, like she'll be able to go through life as yeah, a no normal kid doing activities without getting no, short of breath or whatever. No restrictions. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. They uh, you know, just they said and they said, listen, don't don't give her any special treatment. Like you know, this is she's going to be normal from now on. And, you know, you guys are probably going to be leaning towards babying her, or keeping her from doing anything, but that's not the case. You know, this is uh, luckily for us. It's a, it's a surgery that's once it's done, it's done, and it's and it's fixed. You know, the the hole is closed, the patch is put on, the tissue grows over the patch, becomes part of the heart, um, and it's like it never was there. So we're uh, extremely fortunate that we were able to wow. to have that and achieve that. And now, you know, yeah, she's she's completely recovered. 
she gained more weight in the first month after her surgery than the three and a half months prior to it. Um, so the, the, the effect was immediate. She was all of a sudden, she was eating four to six ounces of milk where before it was two to three, hmm. you know, like literally night and day. So, so cool. It was so super cool. Amazing. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You're, you have the whole spectrum of experiences now that you've gone through here, you know, showing up with nothing really, you know, keeping a couple thousand dollars in the bank account to working super hard, which is something I wanted to bring back into the loop because, you know, there's two things that go on in, in places like this, which I kind of like the greatest trick the third world ever played on a, on a gringo is it's super obvious to us where all the, the demand is like for gringos, like, Oh, there's no good bread. I'm going to be a baker or there's no good this. I'm going to do that. And I think, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, we all, I think, underestimate the amount of effort and time and yeah. just things that are going to go against us when we try to fill that, that yeah, market. Definitely. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, one thing I've always liked about you, and I, I think it's just such a simple formula for people, it's like, you're somebody who shows up. You're authentic. You're there to really help make somebody's experience that much better. And it's like, it's not that hard to do those things. And you can reach the level of success that you've had here, which is like, you're making now Western money. You're making like, you're, you could be living the stakes and, and living a very good life on the kind of money you're making here, where you're living in Nicaragua, making that kind of money and living like a king by yeah. just showing up, being a good person, doing what you said you're going to do to the best of your ability. And like you said, like, you know, just through word of mouth and people saw what you were doing and like, you created this amazing life for yourself, you know? And yeah. now with your family, like, do you see yourself educating your kids here and like this is going to be it forever or is it going to be you know like 10-year plan or five-year plan and then reassess and maybe think about other options and make taking this business model someplace new like i don't know do you still have that adventurous spirit to like go and recreate this somewhere else or no no i we don't i mean we feel so so fortunate to have had the opportunities that we've had and to have fallen into this country when we did that i would i would feel like i would I don't know. I, I feel like I was selling out. Because you also uh, have an uh, NGO, right? Um, yeah. What's it called? It's uh, it's actually well. There's we don't even have a, a real name for it. It's, okay. it's just uh, we just providing English classes for for the local residents in the area. Okay. For free. But you started that right when you got here. Like that was pri one of your priorities. I remember. Yeah, it was, here. it was something we did in, in the first year because we again just felt so fortunate to have been able to land here. We thought, what's What's what can we do to give back? You know, mm -hmm. these people in this country are so great, and uh, and they're just you know, we'd love to be able to do something to help. It's not just to take, take, take. You know, to be able to actually give something back to the community. And um, kind of the the one thing we landed on was the one thing that we noticed is if if uh, if they had English, their opportunities for employment and the amount of money they made and and everything was just you know. It was exponential. Um, they, you know, they made much better money. They, they had a, a lot of opportunities to do many things and to communicate. And you know, with all the the, the development and, and and the people moving down here, I think that, that they would do extremely well to, to be able to have that 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 skill set. And then the only thing that was available to them at the time was a class in Rebus, which again was at that time an hour and a half bus ride away, one day a week. And, you know, it was more money than most of them could afford. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we just started, uh, 
looking for people that wanted to come here and live here and kind of do a sort of a, almost like an intern, like a room swap. Um, Hacienda Iguana was nice enough to donate a room for us that we could allow the teacher to stay at. And now the, yeah, the program's been running for over five years now. How many students and, are there? Um, it's, right now we have about 15, but it's, it's fluctuated over the years. It was, it was a little disheartening because when we first opened the program, we had over 90 sign up. Mm-hmm. And over time, the numbers quickly dwindled down to, but we've had almost the, the same, you know, dozen people for, for a long time now. They've really picked it up and ran with it. And, uh, and they're speaking great. English. Yeah, they're speaking English now, which is great. And it's, you know, it's given them employment opportunities. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a pretty neat thing. Wow, that's really cool. Now, what an accomplishment. I mean, your footprint on this area at this point is pretty significant. You know, with the employees that you employ all speaking English now, it's pretty incredible. It's a really cool story, man. Thank you. Thank you. No, it feels, it feels pretty good to, you know, to be able to employ this amount of people. And, and, um, and again, a lot of our employees have been with us for more than seven years, which is just great, you know, and we really, we've had, you know, 95% of our employees have stayed with us from, from the conception, which has been, which has been just awesome, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, to be able to, uh, just to see how much these properties stimulate the local economy is pretty cool. You know, whenever we go to Rebus or Managua or forever, we're, we're putting a lot of money back into the economy, which, which feels really good, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as you know, you know, this country has grown by leaps and bounds in the last, uh, last eight years that I've seen it anyways, you know, and longer for you. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely, it's, it's really nice to see something move in a, in a positive way like that and to see, you know, people go from walking and a few people having bicycles to everyone's got a motorcycle now and some people have cars and, you know, it's just, uh, people are building homes and, and creating jobs and building houses or whatever it may be there. You know, the, the middle class is, is really emerging here. Mm-hmm. You know, the local iguana school had maybe 15 kids when we first showed up and one teacher and, and half the time the teacher wouldn't even show up. You know, I'd see the kids out surfing and ask them, what are they doing? And they'd say, oh, the teacher didn't show up. So we just left. And, uh, that's, you know, now they have over 75 students. Um, there's th- three full-time teachers that show up every day and a lunch program and a playground and, um, and we've been fortunate enough to be able to incorporate our English teacher into those classes as well. So she does a full hour of English every day with the kids. Um, so that's also been a good, a good way to kind of, you know, to spread that and, 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 and get them some, some exposure and, and, no some, doubt. and some English. Yeah, no doubt, man. So if somebody who has a family in the States who's kind of getting the itch to maybe try something new, you know, what would you tell them? And like how, how maybe how to get started, you know, to take that leap? Yeah, you just, just gotta take the leap, you know, it's, it's completely a leap of faith, you know, and, but you can always go home, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's one thing that people don't realize so much, you know, it's, it's, you can always go back and I almost guarantee you, you know, the way you left your hometown is going to be pretty much the exact same way you find it when you come back, whether it's six months or a year or two years or three years or even five years later, mm-hmm. um, you know, so it's, you know, it's, just go for it. Yeah. I mean, here too, you have an environment that I think a lot of Westerners are attracted to, not just for vacations, but to maybe come make a life for themselves. And, you know, if they had somebody like yourself to maybe 
talk them through the process and, and what to do and how to do. Is there a place that would be best for them to find you? Is it iguanasurfrentals.com? Yeah, iguanasurfrentals.com. And then um, if, for example, a volunteer wanted to come down and teach English, is there an opportunity like that for somebody who wants to come experience that? Yeah, well, we, you know, we, we, have a, we have a great teacher now that she's been with us for over a year. And, um, you know, but people come and go. Okay. And we've been through more than a half dozen teachers you know luckily we've had some really great ones that have stuck around for more than a year some two years um but if we ever have an opening yeah it's definitely something we would consider cool. we keep a list of you know people on wait because we never know what's going to happen with you know mm -hmm. the teacher that we may have here or if the program grows larger or or whatever mm -hmm. um but yeah that there's always that opportunity cool um but but as you know there's, there's just a lot of opportunity down here in general um, it just takes as you know, a lot of patience and a lot of hard work and effort. It's just uh, like anything worth doing, right? Yeah, like anything <laughs> worth doing. Yeah, and you're getting in the water still. You're surfing every day. Trying to. Yeah, yeah. trying to get up there. Yeah, I try to try to get in it every day, but you know, probably yeah, realistically like, every other day. You got yeah, two little girls not running around. Two little girls and stuff. Up. So yeah, it's definitely my yeah. It's nice because we have some we have some nan nannies that help us. You know, in in the middle of the day, mm -hmm. which some, frees up some time. You know, for have a surf or you know for my wife to do some yoga or. Mm -hmm. Or any of that, which is which is nice, but yeah, trying to trying to not lose sight of why we moved here in the first place—that's for sure. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I really uh, hope and wish all the best for you and your family in the future. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it, it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.